you know, some banks will still be around in the future and you'll be able to still use Bitcoin with them. And other banks, like one of the big banks in South Africa, for example, that has come out against Bitcoin, I don't think we'll be talking about them in 10 to 20 years unless they change their stance. In Yuval Harari's very popular and highly recommended publication, Sapiens, he talks about imagined myths, constructs that you and I, that society, has formed as a way of thinking about the world and creating meaning. He talks about things like corporations and religious belief. He talks about things like money and how the entire world revolves around these myths. Money, as an example, is not a natural element. It doesn't occur on the periodic table. It has no intrinsic natural occurrence. It is something that we've created. It is a story. It is a myth. Now, Simon Dingle, a very dear friend, one of the smartest people I've ever met, and one of South Africa's leading experts on the topic of money, and especially the new and disruptive frontiers of money and technology, things like blockchain and cryptocurrency, is my guest on the show. We discuss why cryptocurrencies emerged. We discuss what they mean for you and I, we discuss some of the philosophical elements behind these exciting technologies. We look to the future of cryptocurrencies in the lives of ordinary people and businesses. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share it. As always, we welcome your comments and insights. And now, Simon Dingle. Simon Dingle, thank you so much for agreeing on very short notice to have a chat this morning. So, Sai, a lot of listeners will recognize your name and probably your voice from tech journalism and from input that you would have given on the radio. You've made a big transition, though, kind of from a career perspective from the world of tech journalism and tech commentary into running tech startups. What has that transition been like? And can you tell us a little bit about why? Yeah, it's quite interesting, Mike, about uh, how the world kind of uh, has a headline about you, which has a lot to do with what you put out, I suppose. I actually started my first business when I was um, 18. Indeed. I was building computers and selling them mostly to friends or parents, but in university to a lot of students as well. And that was my first sort of foray into entrepreneurship. Um, and since then, there have been 13... Mm -hmm. around 13 or 14 organizations that I've been involved with or started or run, including the campus radio station itself. So I've pretty much always yeah. been running my own businesses, um, but was known in public for, I suppose, commentating on radio, etc., about technology. So entrepreneur first, journalist second, huh? Yeah, I, you know, radio has always been my first love. So, you know, I had my show on 5FM, which was about technology. Um, I had shows on Talk Radio 702 and podcasts, which replaced my love for radio eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but the transition into actually tech startup was an interesting one because in a way it brought together a lot of the things that I was passionate about. Open networking, yes. communications, open source movements, all of those things sort of came together in fintech in particular which is not something I even knew existed until I transitioned over from purely talking about technology more from a consumer angle to looking at what technology meant in terms of money mm. or rather what network science meant in terms of, of finances. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't choose any of this. It kind of chose me. Yeah. 
Um, in 2011, I was quite happily writing for a number of magazines. I had a column in Brainstorm and Computing SA and Finweek. I had my radio show on 5FM. But I met a man by the name of Christo Doff, um, who Bruce Whitfield, uh, of course, who hosts The Money Show, introduced me to. Um, yeah. Christo, of course, started one of the world's first online-only banks, 2020. He was starting a new business called 227. And um, he said to me, why don't you come and start the business with me? And okay. I said, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And and that started my my um, my current career path, I suppose, that and discovering Bitcoin around the same time and compiling the Bitcoin core software on my laptop in 2011 and starting to play around with that network. That kind of put me on a, a fintech roller coaster that took yeah. me through several businesses and a lot of interesting things. So the attraction to fintech in particular and this relationship between network science and money, is is that because of kind of an in, inherent interest in money and the finance world? Or is there kind of like an underlying shift that you're really attracted to? I mean, what is changing in terms of people's relationship with their money and with the world of money that kind of really inspires you and attracts you? I think, you know, I was kind of a rebel without a cause as a kid, and I still am as a as an adult. <laughs> hmm. But I've always felt a strong sort of resentment towards authority where it didn't make sense to me that we needed an authority. Hmm. Yeah. And and a lot of these things, open source movements, open content movements, the internet itself, they all showed me that I wasn't entirely wrong. There's a lot of things that society can achieve without centralized authority, without third parties that tell us how we should be doing things. And what fascinated me was, you know, engaging with the internet itself as a teenager and seeing arguably the most elegant piece of technology ever created running without an authority, without a company that owned it mm. um, and without needing any mm. of those things. And running just fine and how consensus would emerge in this network without authority and we would together as a community of people using and developing the internet decide on what protocols we were gonna, going to add to it and what it, we would enable it to do. And, you know, it, it kind of also speaks to the fact that human communications is a giant game we play, how we run yeah. our societal structures. It's all, you know, based in mythology. And mm. I guess I was intrigued for a very long time about how this idea of the internet as a movement had transformed media, our social networks, you know, business in almost every dimension, but fundamentally hadn't changed the way mm. that money worked. Money was very late to the game. Yes. And where we really saw money coming to the game was with Bitcoin. And the yes. introduction of a rule set for money that enabled it to work on the internet, but also kind of mysteriously took us back to a very old way of doing money because the way Bitcoin works is actually a very ancient way of doing money, just at scale. Mm. Mm. Um, yes. So all of those things fascinate me, but it's not particularly the money side of it. I find money as a construct very interesting because it's also deeply rooted in mythology. It relies on mythology to function. Yeah, it's it's something that emerged in ancient societies almost immediately with language. So the two almost go hand in hand. You know, it's it's a very human thing, money. We've had it since the beginning of you know what we call being human. Um, so so all of that fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, 
one of those one of those beliefs that we rely heavily on. Yes. Yeah. yeah you know, society as we understand it doesn't function without it. Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm the opposite to you, right? Growing up, I've always had a an attraction for authority figures. I tend to, by default, respect anyone in that. I don't know if that's kind of nurture or nature, but if there is an authority, I'm programmed to respect it. And so, my understanding of decentralized technologies like Bitcoin has taken, I think, a little longer because my assumption is always that. A centralized way of doing things, but largely because it's the way it's always been done and not necessarily because I have evidence that it's better, is typically the way things are done, right? Like that is the default setting for government, uh, for healthcare, for finance, and for a number of other like you know, critical institutions in my world. And I find a lot of people that I speak to about Bitcoin and about cryptocurrency in general and about sort of underlying technologies like blockchain, that's a big part of the struggle is not understanding it from a technical perspective, but kind of divorcing yourself from the belief that centralization is better than decentralization. I mean, has, has that been programmed into us? And if so, why? Well, it has. Um, you know, I can postulate why, and it probably has a lot to do with, you know, what makes us human beings as a species. We kind of needed authority figures to guide us. I think wisdom passed down from one human being to another is part of what got us here. And that meant that at some point you had to respect that wisdom. But as with so many of our behavioral traits um, that served us very well when we were running around on savannah lands trying to get away from lions and gather nuts, these are things that are easily manipulated and exploited and in some ways do us a disservice in mm. the modern world. And I think our respect for authority is one of those things that is is now abused and does more harm than it does good <laughs> in our current politics, definitely economy to to a certain degree. But uh, it you know it's it's I suppose it's human nature to respect authority. I guess it's it's quite a polarizing topic in that if you I sense if you have something to lose, if you are somebody who already has a lot of power or a lot of influence in the kind of traditional financial world, there's a tendency to be very resistant to the idea of this progressive approach to thinking about money. Can we only have centralized money or decentralized money? <laughs> or do you kind of see the future being kind of cohabitation of the two models? Is there a place for banks if Bitcoin is adopted at scale or other cryptocurrencies for that matter? Yeah, it's a very broad question, Mike, and, and the truth is that we'll end up somewhere in between, uh, not because Bitcoin couldn't replace our current financial system wholesale necessarily, but because human beings just aren't ready for that. It doesn't matter that technology is ready mm. to do something. Yeah. It has to fit into a human story, into our narrative in a way that passes scrutiny for most people, because that's not the case. And because there's a lot of misinformation about Bitcoin at the moment, it'll grow and integrate itself into society the same way something like the internet did. I'm old enough to remember the genesis of the internet as something that yeah. a consumer could have and sort of being a high school student in South Africa and hearing my teachers debate this internet thing, like, oh, it's a fad, you know, it's not going to replace the fax machine. Mm -hmm. It's good for, you know, sending emails, but it's never going to go beyond that. And then seeing these protocols being added to it and it really taking on a life of its own 
and big companies trying to fight it, trying to own it. You know, Microsoft famously tried to own the internet. It's, uh, you know, it's very messy when things grow out in the open in an anti-fragile way. And that's how Bitcoin is progressing right now. And there's, it's unfortunately involves a lot of combat at the moment. You know, there's uh, the famous quote attributed to Nelson Mandela. First, they mm. ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight <laughs> you, then you win. But the quote attributed to multiple people, but it holds true for most movements. And Bitcoin has been through the ignore us phase. It went through the laugh at us phase. And now it's in the fight us phase. And we saw the same thing with open source software, which I was a big part of when I was working with Mark Shuttleworth's open, Go open source movement some time ago. We saw Linux, for example, come out. Nobody owned it. Anybody could add to its code base. You know, there were thousands of distributions of Linux, just as there are thousands of cryptocurrencies now. And uh, my, for one, perceived Linux as a threat. And they spent millions of dollars on a marketing campaign in the early 2000s called Facts. It's all over the world, including in South Africa, that was supposed to give you the facts in inverted commas about Linux. And they would say things like, you know, your ROI mm. on Linux is terrible. And have you considered tech support? Because if you go with Linux, it's very technical and who's going to look after it? And basically just mm. spreading misinformation and in some cases blatant lies about Linux. Eventually, Microsoft failed. Because it's like fighting an open source movement is like cupping water. It's quite funny to watch big companies try and do it. And now Microsoft is one of the biggest proponents of Linux to the degree that if you buy or get hold of the latest version of Windows 10, it actually ships with the Linux kernel alongside you know, Microsoft's operating system kernel. So it's interesting watching how these technologies get integrated. And it's interesting that the companies that, unlike Microsoft, thought they could still win this fight aren't around today anymore because the world has moved on and left them behind. And back to your question, I think we're seeing the same thing with Bitcoin in the fight us phase. We've seen misinformation and lies spread about Bitcoin by big companies. For example, American Express took out advertorial in a big magazine in the States with a story about Bitcoin wasting electricity in its mining mm. operations. That's where that story came from. We've seen other misinformation and lies spread about Bitcoin by big companies, that the network is slow, that fees are too high, that it doesn't work as money, it's just a store of value, that it'll never be a currency. These are all pernicious lies that have very consciously been spread by companies that perceive Bitcoin as being a threat. So... I suspect that like Microsoft in the future, where there will be two kind of companies left standing, those that eventually capitulate and realize that this isn't going away and that they have to deal with this movement and will integrate it into yeah. their own stack to some degree. And those who will just sort of doggedly carry on fighting it, lose and disappear. And so to your question specifically about banks, you know, some banks will still be around in the future and you'll be able to store and use Bitcoin with them. And other banks, like one of the big banks in South Africa, for example, that has come out against Bitcoin because they were told to do so by their mm -hmm. corresponding bank in the USA. I don't think we'll be talking about them in 10 to 20 years unless they change their stance. So there's more of an opportunity to use overused words, kind of a symbiosis between these two, I guess, belief systems. To a degree, Mike, you know, um, when Satoshi Nakamoto published the Bitcoin white paper, he also, in the first Bitcoin transaction, inserted a, a headline from the Times newspaper with the chancellor in the UK announcing a second bailout for banks. So it was very specifically designed to give us a better set of monetary policies and a foundation to build a global financial system on that would prevent the kind of 
bullshit that resulted in the 2009 financial crisis. Mm. So that was a very specific aim of Bitcoin was to take a lot of levers away from the central banking empire that are being abused. And of course, it hasn't succeeded in doing that yet, but that was very much the intention. Now, you know, since then, Bitcoin, like open source software and the internet itself, has taken on a life of its own. There's been a lot of reinterpretation. There's been a lot of, you know, slight changes to the protocol, etc. And it's now looking like something that kind of complements the central banking system in the short to medium term, even though it could replace it in the long term. But yes, I, that's the way I see it playing out. Yeah, you spoke a little bit. I want to go back to that point around the financial crisis, because I think that was a, a watershed moment around the realization of just how much greed has permeated the financial system, a, a system that we were trained and brought up to trust in, to believe existed in our best interests. And um, I think a lot is written and understood about both kind of the dysfunctional relationship that individuals have with money, you know, whether we look to, you know, the enormous amount of debt that consumers are willing to rack up or our sort of beliefs around saving and abilities to plan for future earnings or for retirement or whatever it may be, both at, a, at an individual and institutional level, it feels like greed and money have gone hand in hand and that's produced a lot of bad fruits, if you like, or bad results. And, and some of the response certainly of you know, Bitcoin and, and other uh, cryptocurrencies is to, to some of that greed, I think. Does this new wave of decentralized financial systems, does it combat in some way, shape or form or buffer us against greed? Or do you imagine that greed is just fundamentally human and as long as humans are doing wealth and value, you know, do you see greed raising its head in this world as well? And if so, how do we guard against that? I suppose it depends in how you see greed impacting the market. So let's take a step back because I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of very vocal proponents of Bitcoin on Twitter who are very hard-headed libertarians and very extremist in their worldviews. And one of the misunderstandings about Bitcoin or misconceptions is that everybody who supports the technology thinks that way, where the truth is, you know, just so far away from that. If you speak to a lot of the Bitcoin core developers and some of the people who are central mm. to the movement who are too busy to be on Twitter, frankly, you'll find a lot of social libertarians. You'll find um, a lot of people working for financial inclusion to bring the digital financial system to people in, in unbanked areas. So the idea is, is not that we were aiming for full sort of cyber anarchy or a full libertarian system. You know, somebody like myself, I actually think that regulation has a role to play. I think there's a lot, a lot of examples mm. of good regulation. You see it every time you get onto an airplane, right? <laughs> I like the fact that my Indeed. airplane had to be serviced before every flight and that um, the pilot has to have a license. Like, that's good regulation. <laughs> so, um, And we're catering for the person who can't do their seatbelt, yeah. But now to get back to your question, if you look at the 2009 financial crisis, what eventually happened there, to cut a very long story short, and for people who want more information or, or just who haven't seen the film, the big short is absolutely brilliant, not just as a piece of fiction, but it actually tells the story very accurately of what happened in the 2009 financial crisis. And one of the things I love about it is it explains some seemingly complicated concepts in a very fun, but also very accurate and very understandable way. But at the end mm. of, of, of it all, the American people basically bailed out a banking system that had failed and abused them. 
and that it actually profited from its failure because the banking system realized before anyone else that it was going to fail and then put mechanisms in place to actually benefit and get bonuses from the failure. So government as a lender of last resort mm. had no choice but to take money from American taxpayers and give it to bankers who then profited enormously from their failure over you know the previous decades, which is just frankly disgusting. Which is an absurd yeah. thought. And yeah. nobody went to jail except for one poor bastard who was scapegoated. <laughs> A lot of people who should have are still been in jail that is, you know, still out there today, made hundreds of millions of dollars out of the 2009 financial crisis. And then things just kind of carried on. There were some things put in place, but for the most part, poor people were blamed and the system just carried on churning. And the way the American economy recovered from it was by printing more money right? They called it quantitative easing. They always yeah. give it a name that will ensure mm -hmm. that nobody understands exactly what it is. They didn't call it printing money, which is what it is. And then that ultimately failed as well. Mm -hmm. So they just carried on printing more money. And a scary stat, in October last year of 2019, more money was printed in that one month than in the preceding 10 years since 2009. So this is a, a system that's mm -hmm. overheating, that's going to fail again. And at the center of it all, as you said, is greed and the singular ability of the United States, because its currency is the world reserve currency, to print as much of the stuff as it wants, really, with no consequence yet. Now, yeah. let's go back to the Bitcoin network, where we've got a finite reserve of 21 million Bitcoin in a protocol that nobody can alter. One of the misconceptions around protocol or around Bitcoin that I've seen in the news lately is that Bitcoin is actually centralized and controlled by a small group of mining companies in China. That is 100% horseshit. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. I won't go into the technicalities of why it's not true, but it just isn't. So Bitcoin has a monetary system that nobody can change as things currently stand, which means there will be a finite supply of 21 million Bitcoin. There'll never be more than that. And there's no politician who can pull a lever to print more Bitcoin. We cannot make a decision for quantitative easing with Bitcoin. It also means that Bitcoin as a currency is deflationary, which, depending on your view on economics, is a massively positive thing. In a world where we've learned a lot about inflationary currencies like the dollar and the rand that haven't served us particularly well. So I think that Bitcoin could mm -hmm. mitigate a lot of the greed where it matters, right? Like, you know, somebody being greedy in their small business and charging 10 rand too much for a sandwich, I think we can deal with that. A central banker <laughs> or a banking franchise, a whole industry being greedy and just printing as much of the stuff as they can get away with, that's a problem Bitcoin could solve. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and I suppose the deep irony of the choice to invest so heavily in quantitative easing and a number of other strategies to combat the lack of foundation of the financial system as it is currently means that very little of the, of the money that we transfer or transact with on a daily basis has got any meaningful, substantial underpinning or rooting in terms of value. You know, it's not valued against anything substantial. Which, and why I say it's ironic, is that is the big criticism, certainly by people who are 
discovering cryptocurrency for the first time, that's one of the big criticisms of cryptocurrency as a model is that what is it rooted against? What is it valued against? What is underpinning or underwriting the value of this mm. thing? There's a sense of hypocrisy in that, isn't there? So there isn't, there isn't. I mean, you know, money in its current form is valued by society's willingness to accept it, by the quality of the game we're playing and the story we're telling around it, essentially. But even if you go back to the gold standard, you can always ask the five whys. <laughs> you know, the, you can always go down to the next level. It's sort of what is money's value backed by gold? Kif, what is gold's value backed by? And eventually you always end yeah. you always end up with a story again, you know. Gold is a shiny rock. Yes, some people like wearing gold jewelry. That market has declined substantially. You can use it in mm -hmm. catalytic converters, but you know, that's not sort of a major source of its value either. It's just a shiny rock. And it's not even a rare shiny rock in terms of, you know, our galaxy and yeah. our universe. It's it, relative rareness. Yeah, yeah. And not to pick on gold, but the same can be said on anything. The interesting thing about Bitcoin is that its scarcity is extremely um, accurate. There's very high fidelity on how scarce Bitcoin is. We don't know how much gold there is in the earth. There might be a lot more than we thought. So mm -hmm. it's value in terms of its scarcity is sort of a guess. We know that asteroids, you know, not too far from our own planet that are made entirely of the stuff. If we manage to harness one of them and bring it back to Earth, then suddenly we'd have, you know, four times more gold than we currently do. So it's sort of abstract when we think about the rarity of something like gold. Money, of course, is just you can print as much of it as we want. So there's no scarcity to talk of with money. Whereas Bitcoin sure. has a very precise scarcity. And it's the first thing in history that we have that for, underpinned, of course, by Nakamoto mm. consensus and the proof of work network. But it's really a first of its kind if we're talking about it as an asset, which is why it's actually hilarious to me when economists say it has no intrinsic value. Firstly, the notion of intrinsic value is the most ridiculous thing in the world. But, you know, we're talking about macroeconomics here, which is right up there in my world with like astrology. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> so, so one takes it with a pinch of salt to begin with. Sure. But when words like intrinsic value get thrown around, I, I just laugh. So, yeah. <laughs> so intrinsic value essentially is an abstract, right? It is a myth. It is a story. And that story has been told forever. And part of, I guess, what you're helping me understand is that we've told that same story since shiny rocks that we wore as earrings, right? And, and, and made a choice at large to accept that as the, the token for value. Except the fundamental difference between gold and Bitcoin, if we're going to compare them directly, is that Bitcoin has embedded scarcity or predictable scarcity in its makeup whereas gold we don't know for sure right am i hearing you correctly yeah pretty much again it's back to the story that we tell we spent a very long time as human beings with this idea that there's some ultimate source of truth you know that there's some sort of base truth and everything else is built on top of that and we now know that we live in a universe yeah. of pure chaos <laughs> And that sense is only made of it in the human mind. It's just a narrative. It's a story we tell ourselves. So if you don't like parts of the story, fucking change it. But don't act like, you know, things have value when you strip away the human story. Nothing does. Not companies, mm -hmm. not rare metals, not gems in the ground. There are very few things that you can strip the human story away from and they would still have any value. And of course, Bitcoin is one of them. If you took away the story from that, it also wouldn't have any value. But what it does have that none of these things have is a very strict limit on its finite supply. 
it's scarce as hell and provably so. Um, and it now has a scale that not even the most powerful governments mm -hmm. in the world, if they combined their forces, could do anything about. So that gives it a lot of features that no other, you know, financial technology has had before it. So can I ask then, because I think one of the things that potentially has not discredited, but maybe diminished or diluted the perception of the validity of Bitcoin as a kind of a competitor to existing financial systems is these ideological factions that have broken off from the, the core Bitcoin community. And as somebody who doesn't purport to understand deeply how these things work or why, it's been confusing to me that the, that's been allowed or permitted. Um, can you help me explain Bitcoin forks and why they happen and and why they shouldn't be considered diminishing to perceived value of Bitcoin as a financial technology? Yeah, it's interesting because in open source technology, um, forking is actually a very important feature of the methodology. Mm -hmm. And it actually makes the remaining code base stronger in the same way that pruning you know, branches off of a tree can make it, Got you. can make it stronger. Okay. But essentially, you know, forking in software means making a copy of the software and then continuing its development on a different tangent. So, mm -hmm. um, if you imagine, for example, we both like Super Mario Brothers, but I don't like Level Two because you know it's too difficult. And I go, hey, Mike, like you know, it's open source software, so we're allowed to do this, which is not true of Super Mario Brothers, but let's stick with the analogy. <laughs> I'm going to make a copy and I'm going to make, you know, Super Simon Brothers and I am going to make level two a little bit easier. So I take a copy of the software and I go and do that. Now, there are various reasons why I might want to do that. And if we take it back to cryptocurrency, there have been many forks of Bitcoin, either because people have thought they could do a better job of the monetary policy, the protocol, you know, the technology stack, or there have been some ideological reasons. In the case of some Bitcoin forks, there have been personal agendas. There have been some outright cons, um, like Bitcoin SV, um, where you've had some pretty bad people trying to manipulate the network and failing and going, okay, well, let's fork the network so that there is less consensus in the network so we can try and control it in that domain and do it under the guise of trying to make things better. So, you know, it's a little bit, if you look at other human networks, it's a little bit like when a political party splits off, you know. In South Africa, we had COPE split off from the ANC, for example, and go, hey, we like, you know, these policies, but we don't like that one. We're going to break mm -hmm. away, give it a different name and change it. It can be done nefariously where you try and hijack the name. So you fork off and you go, actually, we, the real Bitcoin, the guys left behind are the fake Bitcoin. Um, okay. But the the nice thing is that it's always easy to authenticate the original because you can just fire up Bitcoin software from eight years ago and let it look for its network and see what it finds. And it'll find the BTC network, the original Bitcoin network. It won't find Bitcoin SV or BCH. It's not compatible with them. Mm -hmm. So forks are a beautiful thing. It's evolution in software. It makes sure that um, everybody gets a chance to try out their ideas. It prunes off, you know, conflicting ideas from a network and then it allows for them to compete and may the strongest win. So it's a beautiful thing. It does lead to Cambrian explosions like we've had in cryptocurrency where there are now thousands, which some people find confusing and scary and other people find inspiring and interesting. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's just par for the course with open source software, I suppose. But, you know, to your point, Mike, it is hell of a confusing for people. 
just want to say that Super Simon Brothers is a game that I would play. <laughs> totally. But you, you know, you, you're right to allude to the confusion. Yeah, I suppose it should only be as confusing as having multiple banks to choose from, though, I guess. Well, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of scams and con men that have hijacked cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular for their own nefarious means. As happens with most sophisticated technologies that are going to confuse the normal people in the street who just don't care about it yet. So, you know, a friend of mine who's actually very smart and works in technology in 2017, just before the hype, had somebody approach her in Kauai um, and claim to be a financial advisor who could help her get into Bitcoin. And this guy had almost, you know, tricked her and she's quite smart and knew what Bitcoin was, etc. So if you think about somebody who's, you know, got a large amount of debt, who's worrying about how they're going to make it to the next paycheck, who's heard about Bitcoin being this amazing thing that have made people rich, and they see one of these scams mm-hmm. online that looks very compelling, offering to unlock the world of Bitcoin for them and change their lives, you know, it's very easy to fool people. And unfortunately, there are just so many scans, scams and, and con men out there, pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, etc., that are using Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as ideas to trick people. Yeah, I mean, I completely hear your point around the importance of forking from a principal technology perspective and how that improves the core code base. But I wonder if that's got a downside in terms of kind of mass adoption or or the perception of the validity of that original code base. And if that has a role to play in, in, you know, kind of how comfortable people feel using whatever version it is. But I mean, assuming, of course, they're choosing the version that, that we, we, you know, kind of we agree to support Yeah, I wonder if that's had a downside in terms of critical mass and adoption and everyday usage. You know, ultimately, Mike, it's testament to the fact that we're talking about anti-fragile software and adoption is never made consciously. Early adopters are very conscious about choosing their technology. I mean, you know, in in your and my friend group, Mm -hmm. we had the iPhone evangelists in the early days, right? And I think a lot of us started using iPhones because they did. And they made a very conscious choice about the iPhone based on the technology, based on the trajectory they could see it taking. The fact that it didn't have all of the features of a Nokia phone when it first came out didn't bother them. They saw the future. They understood the technology and they made that choice very consciously. The rest of us just kind of followed them. So, you know, most people didn't make an active conscious choice to get on the internet when it was difficult to use in 1995. They came along in 2000 and got on the internet because everybody was getting on the internet and now it had been productized in a way that made it easy. You know, just pay 99 Rand to MWeb or whatever. Some dude will come and set it up for you and you'll be able to Skype with your grandchildren, Kef. So, you know, that's how cryptocurrency, when it does get adopted by the masses, will be adopted. It'll just be like, Mm. hey, SnapScan now does Bitcoin. Cool. And, you know, you can get paid in Bitcoin from your boss. Nice. And your bank supports Bitcoin. You're just going to get it by default when you get it. But I don't think anybody who understands, you know, the dissipation of innovation curve thinks that um, normal people are going to go out there running to pay for their coffee in Bitcoin. They certainly are trying to buy the stuff to get rich overnight, unfortunately, which is a terrible plague because they shouldn't be doing that. But that's the only kind of mass adoption we've seen for Bitcoin so far. The more meaningful mass adoption will come by default. So what we haven't done is spoken in more detail about your businesses and how how you are playing a role in this new ecosystem. Can you tell us a little bit more about 
what you're building and why you're building it and how people can participate in some of those platforms? Um, yeah, I mean, most of what we do as a business and my business being Invest Capital is behind the scenes. We have one consumer product that we're working on called Lettuce, which at the moment in its current guise is a portfolio manager that brings together the financial world, including cryptocurrencies. So with our app, you can see your entire portfolio of shares, mutual funds, manual assets that you might have alongside cryptocurrencies and and just about anything else mm. you can imagine. We're building it out into an open banking platform that aligns with the PSD2 regulations in Europe. But that's the only consumer-facing project we have. Everything else we do is behind the scenes enabling integrations of cryptocurrency into the world of fiat mm. or old world money. To that end, one of our big strategic partners is Binance, and we do a lot of work with Binance opening up new markets for them. So Binance is the, the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world by volume, and we partner with them in, in several territories. That's one of the things we do in a B2B way to try and integrate cryptocurrency into the fiat world and to build gateways into the cryptocurrency world while we try and work with regulators to understand this new territory um, and to develop meaningful policies that think about cryptocurrency in the correct way. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. We do do a little bit of asset management in the cryptocurrency space, but that's something which is currently run as a pilot. It's not available to the public. And if people are interested in seeing or experimenting with Lettuce, where, where would they go to do that? They can go to Lettuce.money or it's in the App Store or on Google Play as a free download. Super duper. Sai, you've been a legend. Thank you so much for taking time out this morning to chat about something which I, I guess I'm still learning about on a daily basis. And it's fascinating to hear the ins and outs and some really great insights from somebody who is so deeply immersed in what is arguably the most exciting technological frontier, I guess, of our lives. So thank you very much. You've been a star as always. Thank you very much, Mike. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.